Brilliant. Well, what amazing words, hey, that Joe's just sung, that we've reflected on and listened to. You know, songs that speak of Christ's victory over sin and death. And then the end of that song that we've just heard, the great eternal hope that we have in him to which we look forward to. Uh, I just want to add my welcome. Uh, So for those of you who are new today, or maybe if you're just tuning in online for the first time, my name's Owen, and I have the privilege of leading the team here at Foundation Church. And we are this week right in the middle of a series that we've called The Search for Meaning, which is in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 7 through to 14 today. Uh, And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it up. Ecclesiastes 7, and we'll read together in just a moment. Now, last week, uh, we saw, as we read together from the first six verses in chapter 7, how wise people, and it was a strange set of verses, but we saw how wise people allow the reality of death, uh, the, the kind of allow the realization of our mortality to cause them to live each day with meaning and with purpose, Uh, but that, in contrast, fools choose to try and kind of ignore and and put off the fact that one day we're all going to die, and they just would rather not think about it, and consequently they live distracted, never really thinking about or never really engaging with what the meaning of life is, why they're here, and what they're really living for. And this week, we're actually going to follow on from that theme. Uh, And actually, this week, we're going to look at how life and meaning and real hope are found in, in not just embracing our mortality and the fact that one day we will die, but actually found, too, in embracing the fact that however much we would like to think we're in control, however much we would like to think that we can kind of mould and shape and fashion everything in our lives to be just how we would like it to be, actually we can't. (laughs) And realising that and embracing the fact that we just aren't in control is a really freeing thing. And so we're going to look at that together. The verses we're going to read today are really a, a lesson in learning our limits and beginning to trust in God. And so we're going to read together from chapter 7, verse 7 to 13. Just to say, that I hadn't actually planned on doing this, um, but just as I was getting ready to come out today, I grabbed this book off my shelf and I just thought, as we go through this, there may be some people who think, I, I just, I want to read a bit more about what we looked at last week, the verses we looked at and, and what we're looking at today. And I, I just, I'd like to kind of wrestle with that a bit more. Um, there's this little book called The Crook in the Lot by uh, a guy called Thomas Boston. Uh, he lived in the 1700s, so it's not a new book. Um, it's been around for a while, but it is a really excellent book full of wisdom drawn from these verses in Ecclesiastes, and in particular, one verse that we're going to look at today. Uh, and the, the idea of this book and the subheading, which has been added more recently, he didn't add this, uh, says, what to believe when our lot in life is not health, wealth, and happiness. So when 
Actually, we don't have all the things that we can sometimes believe that we ought to have or that advertisers tell us we should have in order to have a fulfilled life. When we don't have those things, when we live with long-term sickness, when loved ones die, when something like COVID-19 happens and disrupts our plans, how do we find contentment and peace and happiness in that? And so it's a really helpful book, and I'd encourage you to get hold of it if you do want to read some more, or you can borrow my copy. Um, But we're going to read now from uh, chapter 7, verse 7 through to 14, and then we'll seek to unpack it together. So let's read. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good, with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's pray and then we'll dig into it together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we believe that every single bit of it was breathed out by you for our good, for our benefit, for our building up, that we might know you, that we might understand something of your character and your nature, that we might understand the way you designed us to live in this world. Lord, I pray that you would help us today by your spirit. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Holy Spirit, would you take your word and cause it to live for us today? Would you apply it to our hearts and lives that we might live for your glory? Amen. Good. Well, we're going to walk through this this set of verses today, just kind of small chunk at a time. And as we do, what we'll see is that although they read it's slightly unusually to begin with, a bit like the verses that we looked at together last week, that actually these verses are uh, like Solomon is almost kind of itemizing or listing off ways in which we grasp for control in our lives, ways in which we kind of try and get hold of circumstances in our life and exert our control over them so that they are how we think they should be. Uh, And so we're going to go through them. So where do we begin? Where does Solomon start? He says this, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. And you might think, well, what's that got to do with control? Well, firstly, is this. Solomon firstly observes that those who are wise will see oppression in the world around them. We read a few weeks back about this, didn't we? He says, when you see (laughs) oppression, don't be surprised. He says, if you've got wisdom, you're going to see oppression. But 
you'll also feel powerless to fix it. And when you feel powerless to to completely fix it, that can drive you a bit bonkers. It's like the weight of the world on your shoulders, recognizing, looking around you, that things are not how they should be, actually becomes too much to bear when you think that in your wisdom, it's your job to fix it all. Now, we might have the wisdom to see how things are not as they should be, but when it comes to it, you and I are never going to be able to fully fix all this world's problems. I don't know if you're aware of that, (laughs) but you need to be. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of people who sin and cause hurt. And on top of that, do you know what? Sometimes what we think of as catastrophically bad, God is actually using to accomplish good. But in our wisdom, we can't see it. Because his ways aren't our ways. And his wisdom isn't the same as ours. And we're going to get to that a bit more in a moment. You see, when we bring our standard and understanding of injustice and oppression to the table, sometimes we get the wrong end of the stick. And so we try and impose our standard of what we think justice looks like into a situation. And it isn't. Sometimes. And so as we allow God's word to inform our worldview, we need to recognize our limits. Guys, I'm not saying you look at oppression. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm not saying you look at things that just are wrong with the world. People who are hurting and in pain. People who are being oppressed for various reasons. I'm not saying we look at those things and just shrug our shoulders and go, well, I can't fix it all anyway, so, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. We can make a difference, and we should. We should do everything we can to bring light into darkness, to declare freedom for captives, to speak hope to the hopeless. We can, and we should, and we must do that wherever we can. We should speak up for the poor and marginalized. We can and should do all that's within our power to provide for those in need. When you come across people who are in need, if it's within your power to do something to help them, guys, you should. (laughs) The Bible's very clear on that. But it's also imperative that we recognize that you can't fix everything. You can't. And if you try, you'll go mad. If you try with your own power and your own wisdom to put an end to all oppression, people have been trying this for a long, long time, right? It doesn't work. It's not within our ability as humans to end oppression and suffering. We're not the answer. You know, I think sometimes you get these famous songs, don't you, about, like, you know, we've got it within us, like, we are the people, like, we're going to do this. Like Michael Jackson wrote a song about it in the 80s, and it was very popular. Or our children, actually, in their first primary school, they used to have this song they sang in assembly. And it was, I've got the power in me, you've got the power in you, we've got, 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 got. And it was all about how, how we've got it all in us to make everything just as it should be. But we haven't. There's only one 
who can truly put right what's wrong in this world. There's only one who will truly come and end suffering and oppression. His name is Jesus. And he will one day return. And he will put all things right. He will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. But the sad truth is, is that try as we might, until he returns, we will live with those things. And we want to do everything we can to care for others, to work against it. But we cannot have the arrogance to believe that we are somehow the saviour. I think oftentimes as people we get this kind of saviour complex and really that is what Solomon's beginning to drive at here is that actually oppression ultimately will drive people mad (laughs) if they believe that in their wisdom they can fix it. If you think you can bear the weight of fixing it on your own, you'll go mad. There's this little phrase that I think can help us a bit in this. And it's been attributed to all kinds of people over time. And so I I don't actually know. I'm not going to say this is who first said it because I don't know. I've heard some people say Augustine said this and other people have credited it to Ignatius and other people have even attributed it to John Wesley. Um, And so really it's not very clear. I mean it could have been like one of the very early church fathers or a slightly later church father or the founder of the Methodist movement. I don't know, but it is helpful. He said this, whoever said it, (laughs) pray as if everything depends on God and act as if everything depends on you. It's this sense of doing everything you can to try and meet need, to fight against oppression and injustice, to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves but to recognise that you can't do it all. And so you work as hard as you can at it, as though it depends on you, but then in prayer you recognise, you wholeheartedly embrace the fact that ultimately it depends on God and rests with him. You know, I already said, but we'll go mad under the burden of believing we can fix everything. And actually, even Solomon says in verse 13, he says, Who can straighten out what God has made crooked, or he has made crooked? And the answer to that is no one, right? (laughs) And actually, it's vanity if we believe we can. And there are some things which God is at work in. There are some things that we look at and think, hey, that, like, that can't be right. And God says, yeah, I'm using it. I'm at work in it. We need to learn to trust him. We work hard, we pray hard, and we trust God. Solomon goes on. He says, a bribe corrupts the heart. <laughs> Extortion or bribery is an attempt at control. Yeah? Let me just unpack why and how. So it's an attempt to manipulate a person or set of circumstances to get the outcome that we're after. And actually, Solomon says, this type of attempt to use money to manipulate something to be how you want it to be is so serious that it eats away at, or it, it distorts or it corrupts the very core of your being. So accepting a bribe means 
violating your conscience, going against your conscience, going against what you know to be right for financial gain. It's like laying aside what you know to be right just to make some money. Solomon is very clear that is absolutely wrong. And actually, bribing someone else, offering a bribe, means asking them to violate their conscience. It's it's another way that people grasp at control. Saying, things aren't how they should be, things aren't how I think they should be, or how I want them to be, and so I am going to use money, my financial power, in order to try and get the outcome that I want. It's saying, I'm rejecting these circumstances or this outcome that is likely to happen, and I'm going to use what I've got to make sure that I get what I want out of this situation. I'm going to force change to have it my way now. And Solomon says, that corrupts the very core of who you are. That heart, that attitude, that behavior is serious. Now, you might never have tried to bribe someone. In fact, I really hope that none of you have. But maybe you have. I don't know. I've done some things that I'm really ashamed of. Maybe one of you has. But I wonder, even if not, bribe someone with money. Maybe you've done the equivalent in another set of circumstances. Maybe you have done your level best, maybe not with money, but with other means to try and exert your influence over someone with the same motive as a bribe would, to get the outcome that you want, that will suit you, that will benefit you in that set of circumstances. Maybe you've tried to grab for control in that way. Solomon carries on. Um, (laughs) It's quite a list, actually. He says this next. Better is the end than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, just to explain, some people read this verse, and they, they, they read it in a morbid way. So they read it as essentially saying, life is rubbish, so we might as well get it over with anyway. Better the end than the beginning. And they kind of read, they wrongly, I think, read back where Solomon talks earlier about the day of death being better than the day of birth, the verses we looked at last week. And they they kind of put that in here and say, look, it's going to be better when we die anyway, so let's get on with it. It's better the end than the beginning. And I don't think that actually is what he's getting at in the flow of this passage. The big picture here is that God is at work. And we're trying to grasp for control rather than trusting him. God is working out his plans and his purposes, and we can want to rush ahead. We can be impatient for circumstances to change. We can believe that if we could just get past this, if we could just get through this to that point, then everything would be okay. And Solomon says, yeah, look, the end is better than the beginning. And in the most ultimate sense, the, the fulfillment at the end of time as Christ returns is better than right now. But we can want to just jump to the end. 
We can want to jump out of a difficult set of circumstances. We can just want to jump out of something that we don't like or that we find uncomfortable and just get to the next bit. But he says, doesn't he, the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. So he's like, look, ultimately the end is better than the beginning. Okay, wait for the fulfillment. But don't try and jump out of your circumstances. Don't think like this is about escapism or just, look, let's get it over with now because the end's better than the beginning. He says, no, 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 no. Don't try and rush ahead. Don't be impatient for circumstances to change. It might be really difficult right now, but don't try and press for that. Instead, patiently walk through each day. Not wishing your time away, but looking around you. Looking at what God is doing here and now. Where's he at work? What's he wanting to teach you? What's he doing? It's for purpose. Be present. Trust him for this day. See, we can proudly believe or arrogantly believe that if just this changed or just that changed, then that would all be better. Or if I was just in this circumstance instead of that circumstance, or if I was the proud in spirit that Solomon talks about here, believe they know best. We need to be patient and we need to have the humility to trust God and the patience to trust his timing, which isn't the same as our timing. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, right? God's timing is good and perfect, but it's definitely not the same as mine. Like, I wish it was, but that's because, sadly, sometimes I'm the proud in spirit rather than the patient. If you remember, we read in chapter 3, actually, Rich began by some of those verses today where he talked about there's a time for this and a time for that and a In those verses, Solomon says that he makes all things beautiful in their time. That God has an appointed time for these things and and each thing is beautiful in its time in his economy. And in Romans chapter 8, we read these, some of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible. In Romans 8, uh, sorry, yeah, Romans 8 verse 28. Paul's writing to the church at Rome who are going through a rough time, right? They're they're facing potential imprisonment for their faith. There's persecution, big time. The like of which we couldn't even dream of. And in the context of talking about their present sufferings and the future hope that they have in Christ Jesus, he says this, and we know That in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. It's amazing, right? Paul is writing to them in the context of suffering. And he's writing to them about suffering, about hardship, about present troubles. They're not in a nice place. And Paul doesn't write to them and say, God's going to make all your Troubles go away and it's going to be like sunshine, rainbows and lollipops. He says, in the context of this difficult place, we know that in all things, even in your trouble, even in your suffering, 
God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. It's amazing, right? God's at work. Even when you're going, I just want out of this moment. God's at work. I read this by a preacher, a pastor called John Piper, who some of you may have heard of uh, this week. He, he wrote this, and I was just like, that's so helpful. Because sometimes what we ask for and what we pray for in our moment of trouble is a good thing, right? It's a godly thing. And he wrote this. He says, Have you prayed for something good and beautiful and God-honoring a hundred times and wondered why there's such delay? And I was like, yeah, I have. (laughs) I have prayed that kind of prayer and just gone, God, what is going on? Like, why? Why not now? And then he said this. Ponder this word concerning the promises of God. And then he put something from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22. It's a promise from God. He says this. He says, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Isn't that amazing? We can sometimes be impatient. We can sometimes wish God was working on our time frame, on our agenda, and we're praying and crying out to him, and God says, in its time, I'll hasten it. I'm the Lord. I'll make it happen when it should happen. A season for everything. Everything beautiful in its time. See, God is good and God is in control. We can trust him and know that his timing is perfect. So don't be proud in spirit, assuming that you know best, and assuming that it's got to happen now. Be patient. Pray. Rest in him. And know that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's working all things for your good and for his glory. Solomon carries on. He says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. You know, anger is one of the surest signs that you're fighting for control in your life. Did you know that? When you get angry quickly, do you know why? It's because things aren't how I want it to be. I want it like this, and it's not like this, and so that makes me feel cross. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, anger is a clear indication of your desire to be in control, your desire to have everything in life how you want it to be. Everybody else doing for you what will suit you, dancing to your tune, going out of their way to serve you and help you. The world revolves around you. Or so we often think. That everything and everyone else exists for your comfort and pleasure and convenience. Do you know what? They don't. The problem is, is that we all walk around thinking that. And so when I think that Jenny's existence should be for my comfort and convenience and satisfaction, and she's walking around thinking that I exist for her comfort and convenience and satisfaction, and those two things aren't the same thing because 
I want to go for a walk and she wants to stay home where it's warm and dry. Oh, what happens? See, when something goes wrong or doesn't go the way we hoped, we get angry, don't we? When we're in a hurry to get somewhere, I'm sure, again, this is probably just me, but when I'm in a hurry to get somewhere in the car and I get to a junction and no one will let me out, even though it would would no real impact on their day, if they just for two seconds paused and let me out, I can get angry. Why? Because I need to get where I'm going and they've just inconvenienced me and they wouldn't let me get there because I think it's about me. Do you know, there's a kid's song that we listen to sometimes um, with our children. It's really funny. Uh, called Mr. Grumpy. Uh, and the, the, it's a Christian song. And it's trying to, it was the guy that wrote it actually wrote it to try and help talk to his children about exactly this issue. It says, this, it says Mr. Grumpy is so grumpy because he thinks he's the boss. He thinks this world's his own. And if someone should get in his way, they know that they will pay the price. Mr. Grumpy is so grumpy because he thinks he's the boss. But then it goes on to say that actually Mr. Grumpy needs to realise that this world isn't his, that this world belongs to God, and that Christ is the king, and that all of us exist for his glory and not for our glory and comfort. We need to recognise that this is God's world and not ours, that Christ is king, and not us. We should stop believing that we should be in control and that everything should go our way. Yeah? It's difficult though, isn't it, right? It's challenging. Let's carry on. What does Solomon say next? He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. What's he tapping into? It's another way that we rail against or reject things as they are. We look at our present circumstances and we think, oh, this is frustrating. This isn't how it should be. This isn't how I want it to be. This doesn't suit me. And we can tend to wistfully long for the past. Wasn't it better there? Wasn't it better when things were like that or before this happened? I'm sure I'm not the only one that does that. In fact, I know I'm not. People often talk about the good old days, right? That's what Solomon's addressing here. And he says that's not a wise thing to do. There's not wisdom in that. And, and there are two reasons why. And the first is that on a very practical note, it's generally nonsense. <laughs> we do it, but it's generally rubbish. It's not true. Our minds actually and our memories play tricks on us. We remember things as better than they were. We look back with rose-tinted spectacles. We have a way of, of kind of airbrushing out the things that weren't quite so great and just remembering the awesome bits. And so we look back. When things are difficult right now, we look back thinking, I just wish it was like it was then. And people have done that about some crazy things. The Israelites, God led them out of captivity in Egypt. They were slaves. He freed them, he led them out, and they're out into the desert, and God's going to lead them into the promised land. And what did they do? They began to grumble. They grumbled at Moses. What have you done? You've brought us out here to die. 
It was better back in Egypt. I'm sorry, it was what? (laughs) Are you crazy? It was better back there. I think all of us are prone to do that more than we care to admit. So there's a very pragmatic, just practical reality to the fact that actually if we were able to go back there, it wouldn't be as good as we think it was. We just remember things as better than they were generally. We've tried to do that a couple of times on family holidays, like somewhere we've been before and something we've done before. And like everyone has this really awesome memory of it. We did it, we went boating a couple of years ago, like on holiday, we hired a boat for some time. And it was like, we just had this great fun time and we had these amazing memories of it as a family. And everyone was like, that was so good. We've got to do it again. And you know what? We did it again this summer. And like, it was all right. But it just didn't didn't live up to the hype of our memory. As you go over it and you look back at this thing, it generally fails to live up to what you think it would, even if you could go back. So that's a practical, pragmatic reason. But the biggest reason that it's foolish is this. This is the biggest reason that Solomon says, don't look back and think that. It's not from wisdom that you're asking that question, is this. And that is because it is a rejection of what God is doing right now. You know that? When you long, when you're impatient and you long for the future, or when you wistfully look back and yearn for the past, what you're saying is, God, what you're doing right now isn't how I think it should be, and I want to be there or there, not here. And Solomon says, "Mm -mm. that's not wise. It's not from wisdom you do that. Recognize that God is at work now and trust him in it. He's at work even when you can't see it. We get a brief pause from Solomon's list of the ways that we try and grasp at control. And he says this, he says, Wisdom is is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. He's basically just saying that all this crazy stuff that we've been talking about, wisdom doesn't do that. In fact, wisdom, he says, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. What he's saying here is that wisdom is of some benefit. It's not of ultimate benefit. Being wise isn't going to save you. Only trusting in Christ Jesus is going to do that. Only a relationship with God is going to do that. But wisdom is of some benefit. The protection of money is that when you've got money, do you know what you can, to a certain extent, shield yourself from some of the hardships of life? Can't you? You all know that to be true. Yeah? If you have a certain amount of money, you can, to a certain extent, shield yourself from some of the challenges of life. And Solomon says, wisdom is, offers protection just like that. So if you're wise, you will avoid some pain and heartache. You won't chase after stupid things. You'll find some protection from some of those things by being wise. But ultimately, it isn't really the answer. And then he carries on. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. 
says this. This is awesome, right? It says, consider the work of God. You think, okay, consider God's work. God's in control. And then he says, who can make straight what he's made crooked? We've looked at that already. Like God does stuff that is beyond our understanding. And then Solomon really kind of illustrates it here. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And we kind of think, yeah, I get that. Like, the day of prosperity, I feel good about that. Things are, by and large, in the day of prosperity, going the way we think they should be. Yes? Yes? So you can, you're, you're actually allowed to respond. So you, you can agree if you like. You know, I mean, maybe you think, that's crazy. No, in the day of prosperity, that is not how I like it to be. I don't want to have those things. And I say, okay, so he says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And we go, yeah. But he's just reminded us that God's in control. And that what God's made crooked, who can straighten out? No one. And then he says, in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. What's he saying? He's saying God made the day of prosperity and God made the day of adversity. And in both of them, you should be content in him and trust that he's in control. Oh, See, in good days and in tough days, in easy days and in painful days, God is at work for your good and for his glory. So on the good and fun days, the days of prosperity, be joyful and celebrate because God made that day for you to enjoy. Maybe you've had some of those recently. I hope you have. And in the day of difficulty and adversity, the day of challenge, when it feels like everything is caving in around you, Know that God made that day too. So you can take heart. You can take comfort that he's at work. See, in short, what Solomon does here is like an expert doctor diagnosing our sickness. He lists these symptoms. Are you experiencing any of these symptoms, sir, madam? Are you experiencing any of these symptoms? Are you prone to anger? Are you tempted to try and manipulate people and circumstances to be how you want them to be? To get the outcome you want? Do you find yourself impatiently longing for the future or wistfully yearning for the past? And then he gives us a prescription for our ailments. And says, here's the prescription you need. The wisdom to accept and trust in the sovereignty and goodness of God. To know that in the good days and the bad days, God is good and he is in control. To recognize that he's working all things together for your good. And when you do that, you find peace. Find joy and you know hope. I want to invite you to surrender to God again today, to stop fighting for control in your life and your circumstances. We're going to take communion in just a moment. As we come to, I want you to respond. So I want you to recognize that you don't have the perspective, wisdom, or knowledge that God does. Just maybe you think you do. 
I just want to help you today. You don't have the perspective, wisdom, or knowledge that God does. You haven't seen the end from the beginning. You don't know all things. You don't. (laughs) And you don't have his wisdom. And as we come to take communion, I want to use the cross as an illustration to help us and to see as we find hope. See, I wouldn't have chosen the cross. I don't have God's wisdom or his knowledge, but I wouldn't have chosen the cross as a means by which men might be saved and brought into a relationship with God. It doesn't seem very wise to me. See, I think I would, probably more like the disciples were, I would have been looking for something more impressive, something more victorious in its appearance, something more triumphant, more regal for the King of Kings. Yet God, who is rich in love, God whose wisdom exceeds yours and mine, God who's seen the end from the beginning and who is working all things together for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purposes, did choose the cross. He humbled himself, took on the nature of a servant, took on your sin and mine as though it were his own. And instead of grasping for control, like we do in all the ways that Solomon talked about in the verses we've read today, instead of grasping for control, he chose surrender. He chose what men considered weakness. He chose sorrow and suffering. He chose what seemed like foolishness to the world. He chose what looked like defeat. He chose pain, suffering. And in all of it, God was working. He was working out his plans and his purposes. See, our perspective isn't like his. Our wisdom isn't like his. We look at the cross and we think, how can that be good news? God was working. How can that be victory? Surely that's defeat at the hands of sinful men. In all of it, God was working working out his plans and purposes for your good and for his glory. It was the defining moment in all history. It was the greatest victory ever won, and yet it looked for all that men could see to be defeat. Things aren't always the way we think they are. We can't see everything with our eyes. We don't understand everything the way we'd like to. But we can trust God. That God is holding all things together and Christ will return to make all things new. And so as we come, I want to invite you to surrender to him. To acknowledge that his ways aren't your ways. That his wisdom is better than yours.